0: Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast Season 2. I'm your host, Casey Tigrett. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. When you talk about the big questions of life, and especially the big questions of faith, it's very hard to avoid a few specific ones. Namely, life and death, sin and salvation. But those are bookends. There's a life that you and I have to live in the present between when we're born, between the beginning and the end, between growth and death, between here and there. My guest, Dr. Shane Wood, calls that life between two trees, the tree of life in Eden and the tree that we see in the end of the Bible in Revelation, the tree of healing the tree of life reimagined inside of a city. Now, I don't know what you think of when I say, Dr. Shane is a New Testament scholar, and you may think of a person with a, a long beard who sits around and thinks all day and tells people what they think or what they should think or why what they think is wrong. But that's not Shane. He does have very long hair, and he does have a beard. But he also has a perspective on scholarship, on faith that is incredibly vulnerable, incredibly genuine, and is infused with his passion not only to know the Bible, but to wisely live it out as a real person in the real world, living life between two trees. So I hope you will enjoy the conversation with my friend, Dr. Shane. Shane, man, you are on sabbatical, and you are talking to me I feel like I feel like I've occupied some sort of sacred space in uh, in your life right now.
1: Well, I mean, it, that's true, but but you're not an intruder into a sacred space. So that's right. You, are, you did you did say you, yes to this. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you you didn't force this on me. So
0: oh my gosh! And this is the first time. So you've been teaching at Ozark Christian College for how long?
1: This is my tenth year, and this will be my my first sabbatical in ten years, and so I'm I'm very much loving it very appreciative, uh, but yeah, real excited for the next couple months.
0: Yeah. So for, so for people who may not understand what this thing is, what it means, Mm -hmm. what's your approach, like your philosophy about stepping into a season like sabbatical?
1: Yeah, you know, um, definitely, definitely um, rest, but, but a rest that's more acutely defined. Uh, It's more, uh, whenever I think of rest or sabbatical or even Sabbath, it's more Um, filling up of the heart, uh, filling up of the soul. And that, so what that doesn't mean is me laying around on a couch every day for, (laughs) for six months. Uh, But I'm able to engage in, in different projects that serve the church uh, that, that I want to do as opposed to the ones that I um, am, am asked to do by teaching every day. So I have a, I have a ton of different new things I'm exploring. I'm even taking violin lessons I'm uh, I'm just trying all kinds of stuff, and then a bunch of different new new paths of study that I'm interested in that I just haven't had time or space to do. Sure, yeah.
0: So the life of a New Testament scholar <laughs> uh, in a universe in a in an academic setting like Ozark, where you're mm-hmm. training uh, people who are going to go into academics for sure, but you're also training pastors and student ministers and people who are going to serve in a variety of places of the church. Mm-hmm. What does that existence look like? Like, what does it look like right now? Not Maybe not this isn't a unique time in history, but it's a unique time for you. Um, what does it look yeah. like to be a New Testament scholar and professor in the midst of what's what's happening in our culture, what's happening in the church?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's actually, I find it to be a fun space <laughs> because I feel like societally, um, but even within the church, there's upheaval. Uh, there's disrest. There's people that are um not just asking the questions we've all asked, at least in private, but they're asking them much more vocally and frankly with a lot more um I mean, anger is probably not the right word. We'll say passion. Uh, but for me, I, I love that because I'm going, okay, now we can now we can dialogue, now we can get somewhere. And true. And what I mean by get somewhere is not now you can get to where I am. What I mean by that is, is now we can actually both engage and sharpen and, and figure out how to, um, how to, how to really step into the stream of what the spirit's doing. Um, I, I am excited about, um, the, uh, the tension that right frankly is in the church because I really feel that where tension starts to arise, uh, things can truly come out and get done. So as a new Testament scholar stepping into it, but I'm also very much committed to the church. I, I don't, I, I don't like, uh, the, the, the gap between the academy and the church. Um, I, I think they desperately need each other. I think the, the academy needs the church because without the, uh, church, the academy spirals off into uh, meaninglessness and a lot of times, uh, heretical stuff. And frankly, the church is, does the exact same thing when they don't have the academy. They spiral off into meaninglessness and heresy. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited about the questions that are coming from the popular culture that frankly, a lot of us in the academy have been wrestling with, but we've just not done it in a way that was accessible or in a way that was, that was vulnerable, but vulnerable enough, enough to, um, to actually be a catalyst for transformation.
0: So you, te- you said two things there, um, one being it may be the first time I've ever heard a New Testament scholar say, "Get things done." Um- (Laughter) There is a sense of like, let's, you know, we use the phrase around, around our place where I serve, uh, we talk about sausage making, like the sort of like nitty gritty conversational theological, let's just, let's talk about this. We talk about that as, you know, sausage making, and then there's the actual like getting done of things. Mm. But I love how you, how you brought that together, that it is, it's about raising questions that allow us to do the things that the church needs to do, or that we as communities of faith need to do. The other part is the, uh, the vulnerability aspect Mm. and to, to be able to know that vulnerability is a good thing Mm. uh, as a scholar is kind of a hard thing because when you attach that name, like for me, my title is theologian in residence for you, Mm. professor of New Testament, and that DR in front of your name. um, As soon as you attach that vulnerability suddenly becomes an occupational hazard. Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you incorporate this idea of vulnerability into a profession that is seen as the Bible answer man, if I might use that, <laughs> that terminology from our former conversation, how do you, how do you weave those two things together?
1: Yeah, for me, it's, uh, it's actually a, th- uh, it is my study of theology that leads me to be, uh, unbridled in my vulnerability. Um, it's like, you know, the seventh chapter of, of my book starts off with the line. Um, I think it's something along the lines of like, when I was six years old, I was molested for the first time. Mm. Uh, and, and, and there's a part of this where I'm going, um, all all of that stuff that you described from the titles to the, to the doctor, to the, all that stuff to me, I, I, there's a part of me that wants to scream out the world and go, you know, that's just a game, right? Like, (laughs) You you know that literally it's just I mean there's a part of it where I'm like it's a game we all play but we forget it's a game whenever you're separated from it it's like I'm 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 broken too uh, the reason I wrote the book that I wrote was because I had questions that if I didn't answer I don't know if I could have continued to be a Christian uh, so so for me the 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 best theology is the complete unearthing of us it's the it's the complete um, uh, diving deep into not just the wounds and the stories, but the theology that is meant to to be the balm on that womb and that's it 's one of the reasons why I think theologians that don 't get things done is just as dangerous as churches that don 't dive deep into theology. I find it both very frightening because it it undercuts the very thing that we all need, and that is the the openness to allow. Christ to actually transform what it is that's broken in us. Mm. Um, so for me, it's my theology and my studies that have actually led me to the conviction of vulnerability and then tapping into outside sources like a Brene Brown and, and things of that nature. I'm going, our society is, is craving vulnerability from all of the, from all corners, especially our leaders. Um, and actually what's happening, I think now is that we're even twisting what vulnerability is, Where we think being a victim is what it means to be vulnerable. And that's not true. There's a difference. Yeah.
0: Could do a whole podcast on like the last 30 seconds of what you Mm. just said. Mm. Um, and so out of that, as a, as a person who deals in the knowledge trade, uh, it's important to. I feel like it's always important to walk to that next step, which is uh, wisdom. And so I mm. always ask guests this question, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you start? Where was the beginning point for you in, the, in mm. the defining of something like the word wisdom?
1: Man, I've been, I don't know if the word obsessed is right, but I've been a deep pursuer of wisdom. I remember sitting in my, uh, my dorm room in college. And praying to the Lord, just please increase my wisdom. Uh, and where I start was really the the dissonance of Solomon. Uh, and I use the word dissonance because I'm going, okay, I'm told that this is the wisest man in the world, but he is atrocious. <laughs> I'm like the you know the thousands of of sexual escapades and the. Uh, The lavishness and and so I really where I begin is the cautionary tale that begins in 1st Kings 3 uh, Where Solomon it's fascinating because what Solomon specifically asked for in 1st Kings 3 is the ability to discern right from wrong and 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 even whenever God talks about giving him a wise and discerning heart God even repeats in 1st Kings 3 to be able to administer justice by discerning right from wrong but the, but the part of it is I'm going, but wisdom truthfully uh, doesn't necessarily, if it's not embodied, it actually becomes someone that knows right and wrong, but they're not actually doing what is right. Uh, and so ultimately where I land is, uh, so I begin with the cautionary tale of Solomon saying wisdom in and it of itself is important. But in Ecclesiastes, he says, you know, that, that even the pursuit of wisdom he found to be meaningless. Uh, so there's there's something that Solomon, even with discerning right and wrong, that he was still lacking. Um, and that's where 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 24, to me, is the climax of my definition of wisdom, that it is Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the embodiment of not just knowing right and wrong, but of actually um, enacting it. So whenever I think of wisdom, I, I begin with Solomon because I was told that, you know, being in the knowledge trade, he had the knowledge of wisdom, but he was not embodying it. But when Christ came, the, he incarnated wisdom. Um, and so my, my definition then turns from a concept to a person.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about wisdom, you start looking at wisdom literature and in the Bible and you look at the diversity of... I was talking to some people about this the other day and you know if you look at the wisdom literature you have Proverbs you have this sort of like common sense 80% of the time this is true Um, not that it's not always some form of true but like sometimes you need to look before you leap and sometimes you just need to leap so these are like general guidelines Uh, you have Job which is messed up on every level um, (laughs) from the fact that God and Satan have a bet going on at the beginning (laughs) To, and you have Song of Solomon, which, depending on who you ask, I mean, is, you know, rabbis wouldn't let kids read it under the age of 15, boys under the age of 15 read it. So that tells yeah. you something. Uh, and then you have Ecclesiastes and you have this idea that everything sucks and then you die. <laughs> yeah. Which is, so there's the body of wisdom literature. And I'm, I do have a point in all of this. Um,
1: <laughs> I love the summary though. That's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> Everything sucks and then you die. Um, right.
0: <laughs> but, God is good, but God is good at the end. In the end, right. fear the Lord and, and all that. But you chose in this book to take on the quintessential human question about life and death. And Solomon takes it on, or the writer of Ecclesiastes takes it on, whoever, you, whoever someone might think that might be, decides to take that on. So it's not an easy thing to step into. What is the what was the energy behind this for you? Why take on such a monster idea uh, in a book?
1: Yeah, it 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 had a lot to do with uh, the unearthing of my own story. So, um, so I, I completed my PhD in 2014, and I remember, I remember getting the you know the piece of paper that comes in the mail, you know, and I open it up and I'm sitting next to my wife and my wife kind of looks at me funny and she says, what, what are you thinking? And I said, um, I'm thinking, I thought this would feel different. Um, and, and I began to really wrestle deeply with that. I thought that, that it would, I thought I would feel a sense of deep down, I didn't know this is, I am, I'm able to articulate it now, five years later, better. I think I thought my PhD was going to heal something inside of me um, that it was actually going to minister to what I was actually craving. Mm -hmm. And when it didn't, there was this, there was this startling, like, well, well, shoot, this is a terminal degree. There's, there's not a next step. So what do I do? And um, so I, I started to dive into the internal journey of my own brokenness and, and what really, what really was the catalyst for me to continue pursuing i thought at the time and i didn't genuinely believe that my academic pursuits were were simply a response to god's call but i think in the carnal state of where i was it was also a response to what my what my heart thought would heal me um as i began to wrestle with that i began to ask very human questions human questions of, well, wait a minute, how, how could I have been so deceived even though I was pursuing something so noble? Uh, you know, I, I didn't begin the PhD with, with thinking I would be a professor. I began it because I felt called to do it. Um, and, and for me, uh, accolades and things of that nature mean very little. And yet, deep down in the core of my heart, uh, it, it may have meant very little, but my heart was actually hoping for something different. So as I drove deeper, I began to, you know, at the time I was reading a book on Hitler and I began to see similarities between my heart and his, which I talk about that in the book of this really startling moment. And so for me, the internal journey is actually one that the scriptures is inviting us into uh, because it's ultimately when we realize we're created in the image of God, but there is something that is a buffer between us and that true Uh, essence of who we are, uh, that buffer in between the two causes this dissonance that actually I feel gift of God calling me back home to something deeper. And so the book Between Two Trees is is an honest wrestling of the, the true brokenness that we all experience and how it manifests in a multitude of ways. For me, it was workaholism. Uh, but you know, I, I, mean, I deal in the book with racism. I, I talk about sexual orientation. I talk about impatience. I talk about, uh, you know, pain and and what, what's the place of pain? Because ultimately in this, in the the premise of the book is, you know, the Bible begins and ends with two trees in a garden. But the problem is, is we live life between two trees. Mm. We're not in garden under the tree of life in Eden, uh, in Genesis or the new Jerusalem in Revelation. We're stuck between two trees. So what do we do now? Um, and so for me, it was it was really the the um, the moment whenever I had the sinking feeling that what I thought the PhD was going to accomplish, it did. Uh, which in that sense, I guess I can find a lot of similarities uh, with the writer of Ecclesiastes. I mean, there was a meaninglessness to it that actually was freeing, uh, that I that that startled me.
0: So taking the two, probably the two most controversial books of the Bible, the first and the last, and <laughs> moving in between them. Yeah. I'm reminded as you were talking about uh, Richard Rohr, who's been an mm. influence in people who listen to the podcast. know we've talked about this before, but this idea of non-dual thinking, that yeah. we are raised, and it's good, uh, we're yeah. raised in this sort of black-white in-out, good-bad, us-them uh, us, kind of polarity. Yeah. But that growing in wisdom is learning that there's the line is not as hard and black and wide mm-hmm. at, between those two as we thought it might have been. And I hear that in you. I hear that in the I hear that in what happened with the degree. You did something noble that didn't quite live up to what it was supposed to live up to. Not only that, it may have aided and abetted a distraction from the mm-hmm. real spiritual issues. And so when I hear that, I hear, I hear a kind of death in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we hear Jesus say, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, which that only leads one place. We tend to think of that as some sort of high-end martyrdom, but there are some little deaths mm-hmm. of like, I thought this degree was going to set, sa- or I thought this promotion that I've been killing myself to get, uh, I've been acting in unwise ways mm-hmm. for something that actually I may have done some good along the way. Mm-hmm. do you feel like the life in between the trees and especially the way the scriptures really feed into that life, does that sustain that idea of a of a mm-hmm. way of living that's both that you can be simultaneously on the right path and doing things that are completely that are not completely but that are somewhat destructive or completely destructive? yeah.
1: I I think the scriptures definitely do. And I think there's a part of it. Um, You know, I I think you do see it in Romans seven, you know, with the uh, wrestling with, uh, you know, this flesh. Uh, But I I think it's actually in the tension of the wrestling where the fruit comes. Uh, This is the reason why um, there's a couple of things about the book that, that, um, that non-duality uh, I, that I love about, uh, number one, what I loved about the book is that is that the range of endorsements is actually confusing for a lot of people because because Father Richard does endorse the book, but so does Kyle Eidelman. You know what I mean? So it's like, and those typically two don't share a stage, Yeah. Uh, but, but there's a part of the, the, the humanness of the wrestling of the, of the book that, that I think does cause people, regardless of what side of the spectrum they're on, on the progressive or the conservative, that they're able to say, but this is what makes us human. Mm. Um, and there is incredible things that comes out of atrocious things. And to me, that is redemption. So that, that's where, again, I go back to my story of being, being molested. It's like, I, I don't believe that it was necessary for me to be molested in order for me to have the fruit that I'm bearing right now. However, the fruit I am bearing right now is inextricably linked to the fact that I was molested Mm. (laughs) and and there's a part of that where I'm going it's that it's that that moment where those two come together the atrocious and the holy uh, is where I find Christ's sacrifice that Mm. that is to me the cross the cross is this non-duality of the worst of humanity on display by torturing people on a tree as they hang as he hung between two trees as suspended between heaven and earth it is the most the Passion of the Christ tamed it. Whenever Mel Gibson made the movie, it, it it had to be tamed so it could fit in theaters. As as a Roman historian, I'm going. The crucifixion practice is one of the most uh, one of the most sadistic things that humans have ever come up with, mm. and yet it is this collision of of beauty with Christ, uh, of redemption. And so I I talk to my students about this a lot when it comes to transformation. It's like, listen, you're not able to have an empty tomb without a cross. You can't have a resurrection without a crucifixion mm-hmm. uh, because, it's because in Christ, um, and this was one of the questions I was wrestling with in the book is, if Christ truly has conquered death, then why do we still experience it as Christians? But the answer is, is that, is that it was our choice to become one flesh with death in the Garden of Eden. That, that that in God's love he's going to honor our choice of union with death but he's not going to stop his pursuit so instead he repurposes the death that we all experience in small ways and in big ways in order to be a conduit through which in Christ we can have union with him but 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 so in other words i mean do you see it everywhere in creation too this is what i love i'm like in gardening like one of the one of the important components of gardening is compost as dead stuff mm. that creates nutrient-enriched soil that then you put over soil and then you put seeds inside of it like a body in a tomb and life comes out of the death. So it's a message God's actually been screaming to creation for years after our choice in Eden. Mm. And it's one that we, it takes time for us to mature to be able to see because I do agree that duality is important in the first half of life. I'm walking through, my my son is 15 And man, he, he, he is a rule follower. You know, he sees things black and white And our conversations over the last year or two has been me saying, Hey son, you need to stop seeing things. So black and white, it's not, it's not. And he's, it's, he's startled by it. He's struggling. And I'm saying, and the reason why you can't see it black and white is because life doesn't fit into all of our nice little boxes. (laughs) But, but what's, fun is is that is that God doesn't fit into those boxes either. He allows mm-hmm. us to begin there, but yeah, he's looking to move us beyond the boxes.
0: And your son is barking at you too, because a lot of times it's us as the parents who taught them the black and white. Exactly right. So he use like, wait a minute, <laughs> how do you how does this work exactly? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what looks like hypocrisy is actually evolution and maturity, and yes. it's, sometimes it's so hard to tell the difference. You talked in the book about, um, you brought that up briefly, I'd love to hear more on this because I thought it was interesting, the, the idea of sin and union, mm. uh, that that there is, to understand sin means understanding what union really looks like. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, Um and where that came from was, was really me wrestling with the question, not just what is sin, but is the definition of sin that is rampant primarily in, in Protestantism, but, uh, but in the church as a whole, is it enough? That was really the question I asked. Have we, have we sold sin short? Uh, because typically we define sin as this divine infraction. We broke a rule. And I'm going like, I'm not saying it's not that. I'm just saying, what if it's more than that? What if it's worse than that? Um, And so I started really looking at the different ways in which uh, food plays a role throughout all of the scriptures. You know, I mean, like at the, at the center of, of uh, Christian practices is, is the Eucharist is communion where we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. Um, And so there's this ingestion moment. And I even asked the question, why are we ingesting Christ? Um, And then if you start looking at kind of more common wisdom, it's like, well, what you, we know this. Well, you are what you eat. Like we have even these, these trite cliches. Well, if you are what you eat, then what really happened in Eden when they ingested the fruit? Mm. I mean, when, I, when you start thinking about the digestive system, that whenever you ingest the fruit, there is a union or even a drink. A union takes place where two have become one. And in order to separate those two, you actually have to, in a sense, destroy both. Hmm. So, so whenever we, so my 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 uh, conclusion was um, that sin. Uh, well, and there's a linchpin verse in Genesis 2:24, right before Genesis 3, where the serpent comes and they ingest the fruit and fall. Uh, Genesis 2:24, it it has a un, it's a union text. You know, for this reason, you know, the the husband will leave his father and mother and will unite to his wife, and the two will become one. So I thought that was interesting, leading right into the Genesis 3 account, there's this two become one, and then we see that in act, except for, so as, as which that's really Trinitarian. <laughs> you know, we believe in three persons, one being. There is a union between them, mm. that if you take away one, you actually don't have the other two any longer. It's a destruction of all. There is a inexplicable union. Well, we were created in the image of the Trinity, Therefore, we have the capacity to become one with something. And we chose in Genesis 3 to become one with death. So my conclusion was the problem of sin is way worse than breaking a rule. It's infused into the very marrow of who we are and what we do and what we think. So therefore, I think and live and move the way death does. <laughs> uh, it's the reason why sin sounds more fun or uh, you know, death seems more logical or violence seems more natural. Is because we're infused. It's in the very sinews of our body, this union with death. And then, but then the, the beautiful part of this is, is, I'm like, so if the problem is way worse than I ever dreamed, then the solution must be way more profound than I ever imagined.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so eventually the book kind of develops into a bit of an atonement idea of what if atonement is more than just saying, "Ah, you're not guilty anymore? No, it's, it says that. But what if there's a level of union with God that's something more along the lines of First Peter 1, uh, or 2 Peter 1, verse 4, where it says it's, it's to partake in the divine nature, which partake is ingestion language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's union. So whenever the union lens I put it over the, the, the scriptures, it, it overwhelmed me not just with the problem, but with the solution. This may be way different than what it's – not, it's not that what we've been saying is wrong. It's that what we've been saying was abbreviated. Mm. Um, and an abbreviation is not wrong. It's just not all that there is whenever you start to unfold it.
0: Yeah. And I can see where seeing this sin as union or the opposite of sin, life in, in with Christ as union, is fits really well with the concept of wisdom. Because if you're talking about sin as laws that you don't break, you really don't have to be wise. You just need to be rigid. Yep. And the gap is where it seems like Jesus steps in and confronts religious people. He's not confronting them because their religion's wrong. He's confronting them because they're exploring it with a lack of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it creates an obstacle to their union.
1: 100% agree. Um, And and that's even kind of what I confront here. So so some of my definition of wisdom that I gave you earlier of of I, I look towards a person. It's the same thing I talk in the book about truth like truth is something that we have as this abstract idea that we are able to dissect and rigidly engage and then we kill people with it <laughs> but i but but i ask in the book like but but john chapter 14 seems to indicate that jesus is the way the truth and the life it seems to indicate that truth is a person so whenever you're dissecting truth you're actually you know putting jesus through an autopsy before he's dead <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I find that to be disturbing. We, we make so many things abstract that therefore allows, um, uh, a distance between us and the concept. And so we feel like we're, we're engaging a cadaver more than we are something that is living, but whenever it's alive, it actually threatens to become a part of us. And that a lot of times overwhelms us to the point where we'll keep it in the box of rigid morality. Listen, I'm not saying that, that you can choose whatever you want and that morality doesn't matter. I'm saying that actually choosing right and wrong or knowing right and wrong, like Solomon did, is not the same as embodying it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Yeah. I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking in terms of people who are listening to this, and they've heard us use several, I mean, we've used some big we dove into the Trinity, and we're solving all these questions, of course, Shane. We're answering <laughs> yeah, you know, questions of atonement and Trinity and <laughs> sin. Uh, but I I know there are people who are listening, and I was thinking of a few specifically, who those are words that characterize a time of um, spiritual abuse yeah. or or struggle, or those words were used against them, especially in their journey of mm. dealing with their dualities or dealing with even deconstruction which is probably another discussion for another time but there's there's some of that that's going on when you step you are using uh, one of the things that's wonderful is when the bible redeems even itself and the way it's mm-hmm. been used and seeing things through the lens of jesus often redeems things that we've seen through the lens of something destructive mm-hmm. how do you as a new testament scholar how do you step into those conversations with people who say, "I don't know that I can. I don't know that the Bible can heal itself for me, because mm-hmm. of what I've heard it be, how I've heard it used in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, their life between these two trees, the Bible is an enemy, yeah. Instead of the thing that redeems the story. How do you step into that? Maybe in the book, or how do you step into it personally?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I usually love it whenever somebody says something like that because that type of intensity. This goes back to that tension. I'd much rather have somebody look at me and say this thing has nothing to do with me, and then my response is, "Oh, now we can actually get somewhere," <laughs> because because it's whenever you get to that that visceral opposition that I'm going. This means something to you, and if it means something to you, then let's explore that why where does this and so really it's the unearthing of the story very rarely am i put off by people's questions very rarely am i put off by people's even you know life choices you know so i'll have people that want to bait me into all kinds of debates over you know the whatever the 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 newest political uh you know climate debate is over whatever moral issue i'm very rarely uh interested in those conversations Because a lot of times in my own heart and life, I've realized those conversations are smoke screens uh, because the wounds are producing uh, those objections. So I'd rather us talk about the wounds. Tell me your story. I I, I just want to hear where you grew up. I want to hear what your relationship was like with your parents, uh, your siblings. Uh, You know, matter of fact, this is where I'm going. This is where grace is scandalous. Grace is where grace really has the greatest um, uh, controversy is whenever grace invites itself into the deepest parts of our story. And it says, ask questions like, who is your greatest enemy in your story? Let's let's talk about how to forgive them. Um, So I I talk about Joe, my babysitter, that was the first that molested me. Um, And I realize, so go back to the Ph.D. moment. I had not told anyone in detail the situation that happened to me when I was six, around five, six years ago. Uh, and, and, the, and what I realized is that that actually was manifesting itself in my workaholism. The, the difference between me and someone else is that my wound produced something that was more socially acceptable and even applauded. Hmm. Uh, but it was still a manifestation of my wound. And whenever people talk to me about the Bible and it wounding them, my response is it wounded me too. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very legalistic setting uh, where I remember, and I, I, I don't know, I don't talk about it in this book. I'm writing it for my next one. But I remember uh, being put in the corner for saying the word gosh. And I remember crying in the corner as a four-year-old going, I, I didn't want to do something bad. I don't, I don't know why I'm in the corner. Um, and, and the bottom line is broken people break people. Um, and, and there, there is a part of it. If we're honest with the brokenness in ourselves and we walk the deep path of the internal healing of our individual stories, that's, that is the only place where compassion can start to come towards the people that broke us. And at that point you realize that the question about the Bible starts to fall away because you're dealing with, you're actually focusing on the thing that needs a surgery and not just putting a bandaid on it by me giving you some you know, uh, logical syllogism about why the Bible is true and God exists. Like uh, logical syllogisms, is not what we're looking for? We're looking for that, that person, that healing something that goes all the way back to the greatest wound that we try to ignore, but is actually controlling us the more we ignore it. Mm. So for me, that's, that's where I go. I, I'm not scared about people, um, not not buying into the Bible and wanting to talk, but I, I am concerned about us being honest with what we're actually doing, <laughs> and that is running. We're all running in unique ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. And your transparency and your scholarship go together so incredibly well. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that this book is in the world. I really am. And your approach to it and your approach to the things that you've talked about, I think it's going to be healing for people. And it, it already has been. I mean, you're, you're already hearing stories of people who've received this well. So uh, I'm glad that that's happening. So thank you for the work that you've done and engaging your own inner healing and, uh, and leading people to theirs, too. I think it's a beautiful thing.
1: Man, I appreciate that a lot. It, that means a lot to me. It's been a, it's been a wild journey for me. And I hope that other people can jump on it with me, so.
0: Dr. Shane J. Wood and his family live in Joplin, Missouri, where he's the professor of New Testament Studies and the associate academic dean at Ozark Christian College. His book Between Two Trees, Our Transformation from Death to Life, is currently available, and I think reading it would be uh, something that would benefit you greatly. Uh, He has written extensively on multiple topics related to the New Testament, including the book of Revelation, which if you're interested in that, you can find information about that on his website, shanejwood.com. You'll find that link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. If you're streaming via my website, thank you for that. Uh, If you're listening on iTunes, uh, if you wouldn't mind rating or reviewing the podcast, it will help other people find their way here. And so, uh, as you live life between two trees, may you find the wisdom to live in the non-dual way of Jesus, knowing that there is good in the evil and that when we find it, when we find it, That tension is what produces growth in all of us. Be well, live wisely, peace friends.